There we go. That's the vibe I want for this podcast. Intro music to a podcast is so important, it sets the tone, and the tone I want for this podcast is Dinky and Twee. And that song does it perfectly. The song, of course, is uh, 1924's Charlie My Boy by the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. It's a banger, I think we can all agree, and crucially, it is also copyright expired so go ahead and try to come after me Fletcher Henderson or more likely a state of Fletcher Henderson because he's surely been dead for 80 years but dead or alive it's not going to do you any good you can't sue me because the copyright has expired hello I'm Jeff Maurer you are listening to the podcast version of I Might Be Wrong I Might Be Wrong is the Substack I write if you like the article you hear today there are many many more articles on my Substack, the address is imightberong.substack.com. Okay, before we get to today's column, here we go. Let's do it. Let's talk about Chappelle. I have been resisting this. I've been getting a lot of emails. Hey, you going to talk about Chappelle? Uh, I think people are asking because, number one, I'm a comic. Number two, they know that I am very worried about this atmosphere of censoriousness that is surrounding comedy at this time, so they kind of want me to comment. I, I've been resisting commenting because, I'll tell you something, when, when you're an independent media person, there is a big temptation to just jump into any hot-button issue with both feet because it will get you attention and get you clicks. Uh, the first time I noticed this was when the whole Simone Biles thing happened. I had just started the Substack when that was all going down, and... <laughs> It occurred to me, not that I was going to do this, but it occurred to me, you know what I should do? I should write like five columns with five takes and just like hit hit all the takes. Be like, oh, she's a hero. And then do, oh, she let the country down. Just do all the takes. One of them would take off and then I would quickly delete the other four. That's what you should do if you're trying to get attention and we're all trying to get attention. And I'm not going to go into all my thoughts about Chappelle because all of my thoughts would be a many hours long conversation. My rule on these things is that I try to speak up if I think I have something to add. I think I maybe have something to add. And the thing that I want to add to the conversation is just the notion that telling jokes is really hard, okay? <laughs> telling jokes is hard. Stand-up is hard. And a lot of times, when you're doing stand-up, you might tell a joke that you don't totally believe because it works. And I think this is relevant to the conversation here. So, you're doing a joke, you have to have some kind of angle that the audience is going to relate to. You know, if you're doing a Kim Kardashian joke, the angle has to be, her ass is big, because people will hear that and think... Indeed it is. Tis quite large. I relate, and now I'm going to laugh. If your take is, she's too aggressive on Taiwanese independence, they're going to go, what the fuck are you talking about? I can't relate to that. I can't laugh at that. So you end up saying things that, again, like maybe you don't totally believe them. This doesn't make it okay, but you kind of just give the audience what they want sometimes. It can be a form of populism, and... 
I know this because I did this, and I actually did it in a way that is so specifically relevant to the whole Chappelle thing that I, I thought I'd talk about it now. So, in 2005, I had a joke in my act that was definitely uh, a transphobic joke. I'm not proud of it. I should not have done it. But let me tell that story so you can at least get inside one comedian's head. So here's the context. It's 2005. I was 25 years old. I was brand new to stand-up. I was less than a year into stand-up at this point. And in 2004, that was the year, you might remember, Republicans put anti-gay marriage constitutional amendments on the ballot in like 30 states. And it was a huge success for them. All 30 passed. And it also drove conservative turnout. It was one of the big reasons George W. Bush got reelected. Conservatives showed up to pass these ballot measures. And it was kind of a big thing for Democrats. We were kind of licking our wounds. So the joke I told, and I, I won't be able to remember it word for word. It was in my act for a couple months. But let me do my best to recreate it here. The joke was... Uh, I would say something like, so, uh, God, Democrats, we had a hard time in the last election. Those gay marriage amendments killed us. Yeah, let me say this about the GLBT movement, and that is, I'm not totally sure we need the T right now. Maybe the T can come along like 10 years down the road. I feel like the message now needs to be, hey, two people who love each other, should be able to get married. Who's coming in the meeting going, oh yeah, and also don't forget about the chicks with dicks. Yeah, the chicks with dicks and guys with pies. Make sure they're part of the conversation. That was the joke. I'm ashamed to tell it, but that was the joke. <laughs> it's a bad joke. And it's, I was 25. I was new. It's a bad joke. And it's a bad joke for two reasons. First, because it's not funny. All right, all I'm doing is I'm trying to squeeze laughs out of the phrases, chicks with dicks and guys with pies, because I thought those were funny, because I was a 25-year-old fucking idiot. So it's not funny, and much worse than that, it's a dickish joke. It's a fucking rude thing to say. I was, obviously, I'm trying to get like a pro-gay marriage thing in there, but I'm just kind of being a dick to trans people. I'm just having that childish, like, oh, it's weird reaction. That's all I'm doing there. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have said it. Why did I do it? Because the audience laughed. The audience laughed. Stand-up is hard. You're up there by yourself. Bombing really hurts. You'll kind of do anything in that moment to make the audience laugh. If you say something and the audience laughs, you are probably going to say it again the next night. And if it works the next night, you'll say it again the third night. It's not a very noble explanation of what's going on, but I think it's a somewhat truthful explanation of what's going on, at least sometimes. And I think sometimes, even high-level comics, and granted, there are galaxies of difference between where I was and where Chappelle is right now, but I think even at high levels, comics sometimes don't want to say, hey, look, I, why did I say that? I don't know. I probably should have thought it through more, but I didn't. Because I said it and the audience went for it, so I kept saying it. They don't really want to give that explanation because it makes you sound like a dork, right? It makes you sound not very thoughtful. It makes you sound like no kind of artist. I don't think it's an explanation people want to avail themselves to, but I think it might be the truth sometimes. And I think a good example 
is a guy Chappelle mentions in the special, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, many years ago, told some jokes that were homophobic. Were those good jokes? No, not in my opinion. But why did he do it? Look, almost certainly because in those rooms at that time, that was what worked. Does that make it okay? No, that doesn't make it okay. But what it does tell us is that those might not be deeply held opinions by Kevin Hart. Is he a hateful guy? No, I don't think he's a hateful guy. I think he is a guy who is telling the jokes that work. So this is the difference between an excuse and an explanation. An excuse is saying, everything I did was fine. I have no apologies. I don't think that's going to fly in every context. I have been very vocal about the fact that I think there is too much censoriousness, not censorship, because people aren't always shut off, but censoriousness, this attitude of, ooh, don't say that in comedy, it's annoying sometimes. People pretend not to get the jokes. They pretend not to get irony. They pretend not to notice when you're being arc. There's too much of that. I do think that when you're on stage, the rules are different than they are in the rest of life, but I don't think there are no rules. I think you are still accountable for what you say. Specifically, you're accountable for the thing at the core of the joke. The reason that joke I told in 2005 was bad was because the thing at the core of that was just, trans is weird. It's bad stuff. I can't get behind it. I wish I hadn't said it. So it's not an excuse. But it is an explanation. The explanation is, look, I'm not a bad person. I'm a lazy person. I did a bad job. I was being a hack. I was just giving the audience what they wanted. That I am guilty of. But I didn't mean that deep down. And that is why you certainly can criticize Chappelle. Look, Dave Chappelle has said a lot of things I don't agree with, especially if you go to his previous special, Sticks and Stones. He said a lot of things that personally I wouldn't get behind. I don't have to endorse those things. I don't have to like those things. I am also free to not watch his specials if I don't want to. But I'm also going to resist the temptation to add up everything he said in his career and then slap the bad person label on his forehead because I know sometimes in stand-up you say things and the reason is, oh, I wasn't really thinking. So there we go. Let's do today's column. Today's column is called Facebook Isn't the Problem. Facebook is the software the problem currently uses. I wanted to write this one because there seems to be this idea out there that if we somehow could surgically remove Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and just drop in a person with stronger moral character, then all our problems would be solved. I think that's really off base. I think there are innate things about social media and how we use it that mean that it's going to be kind of this way no matter who's in charge. So here we go. Facebook isn't the problem. Facebook is the software the problem currently uses. Subtitle, we need to differentiate cause from effect. Big, important Facebook stories are, at this point, basically their own genre of journalism. The articles are a lot of fun. They involve moral grandstanding, which is always a blast. There are secret documents. Oh my God, the media loves secret documents. And the articles are also unironically shared on Facebook, which I really enjoy. Though I'd say probably my favorite element of these articles is the relentless hell that the Facebook F gets put through by various graphics departments. They are always torturing that F. In the last week alone, 
the F has been melted, drowned, and crushed to bits in The Economist and the New York Times. And if you go to the written article on I Might Be Wrong, you'll see the graphics I'm talking about. And then I had some fun visual jokes, which unfortunately I can't convey <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, but I did some fun stuff with the F getting burned at the stake and giving it devil horns and stuff. Fun with Photoshop. That's on the written article. Anyway, Facebook has somehow managed to become completely friendless. And friendless counts as wordplay if you're scoring at home. Because friends, Facebook, it, it counts, trust me. Facebook somehow got themselves on Democrats' shit list after the 2016 election and then on Republican shit list in 2020. Also, they are a giant corporation, so of course the far left fucking hates them. And they are also full of uh, nerdy Bay Area types, so the far right hates them as well. Nobody likes Facebook. They are the kid at school who gets picked on by the entire class, and when the teacher intervenes, it's only to give the little loser a wedgie and kick him into the mud. Personally, I completely agree that Facebook sucks. I am never having a worse time than when I'm on Facebook. My feed is nothing but comedians promoting their shows and cousins of ex-co-workers having arguments about ivermectin. The Facebook memories feature would, in my opinion, be more accurately titled, uh, hey, remember that time you got divorced? Because that's pretty much what it is, that and dead house pets. And honestly, I am stunned that a company could build a trillion dollars in market cap from a software that makes it easier for people you went to high school with to find you. I would pay top dollar for the exact opposite software. So that's how I feel about Facebook. And yet, I'm just about the closest thing to a defender that Facebook has. After last week's Senate testimony, anger towards Facebook was at an all-time high. People wanted to see Mark Zuckerberg be subject to the punishment that was all going to the poor Facebook F. And look, I understand the anger, but I feel that a lot of the criticism misses the point. I think the problem is a lot larger than Facebook and a lot more difficult to fix. A lot of people called last week's Senate testimony from former Facebook project manager, and I'm never going to get this right, Francis Haugen, Hoygen, Hogan. Uh, you know, it's an H-A-U. I'm M-A-U. I should have sympathy for somebody else who's been saddled with this weird Central European A-U. What, what, what sound does it make? You tell me, Switzerland. I say Maurer, so Haugen? Let's go with Haugen. Francis Haugen. Boy, I got off track there. Francis Haugen's <laughs> testimony in front of the Senate was called a big tobacco moment. It's, I think, a totally overblown comparison, but there were a few similarities, most notably that internal research painted a very different picture from what the company was saying publicly. And I think there's a lesson here. The lesson is never do internal research. If you research the effects of your product, you become vulnerable to the they knew narrative. Look, I promise you, if I might be wrong, ever results in mass birth defects, I will not have lifted a finger to learn about it. You can hold me to that. But there were some similarities. Another similarity with Big Tobacco is that most people basically knew everything that came out in Senate testimony. I personally find it hard to believe 
that anyone who follows this topic didn't already know that Facebook is built to maximize engagement and that engagement usually means inflammatory and outrage-inducing content. We've actually already had this ex-Facebook whistleblower narrative several times. There was, oh, more names here. Chamath Palahapatia in 2017. If you think that was the first take on Chamath's name, then you are naive. Sandy Parakilas that same year, and easy to say, Roger McNamee, good old Roger M in 2019. Look, there is a whole Axios list of these ex-Facebook people. It honestly has to be considered part of the Facebook career path at this point. You get in, work hard, wait for your stock options to vest, and then have your moment and possible book deal as a truth-telling whistleblower. After the stock options vest. After. Very important. My problem with the current media narrative is that it treats Facebook as a uniquely bad actor. If Facebook were singularly awful, then things would get substantially better if they would just shape up. But I don't think that's the case. I think this narrative is a real OJ searching for the real killers situation in that it's a misdirect drawing attention away from the actual source of harm. Haugen's testimony added to the already large body of evidence showing that inflammatory content does really well on social media. At this point, the market signal could not possibly be more clear. People want content that's provocative and in-group affirming. And they also want sex. When it comes to hard abs and big jiggling butts, America says, keep them coming. Which does highlight the very non-revelatory nature of these revelations. If you didn't already know that people want news that confirms their biases and images that engorge their privates, then may I humbly suggest that you have not been keeping up with the media trends of the past 200,000 years. People are mad at Facebook for basically giving in to market pressures. And again, I get the anger. Facebook's actions have a real, hey, someone's going to fuck these people up, might as well be us, vibe to them. But the crime here is basically giving people what they want. Which does make me think that it's probably not possible to build a social media landscape that functions in a substantially different way. Consider the suggestions Haugen makes in her testimony. Her first recommendation is for Facebook to do less cultivation of people's news feeds. Content, she thinks, should pop up chronologically, just like it did in the old days. Her second suggestion is that Facebook should require users to actually read an article before they share it, which would slow down sharing by just a bit. Of course, read surely means click on because you can't make someone read anything. That is in the Constitution, I think. I have not read it, and I won't ever. So those sound to me like reasonable suggestions. But are they game changers? Absolutely not. The newsfeed recommendation in particular is funny because we already kind of know what that looks like. Haugen's proposed change would basically roll back an alteration that Facebook made in 2018. That change is the source of much of the criticism Facebook is getting right now. So the plan is the news feed 
if we do what Haugen wants, would look a lot like it did in 2016. And 2016 happens to be the year that misinformation on Facebook helped elect Trump. It's the year that people started demanding that Facebook take more control over the newsfeed. There's an incoherence here. Do we want more newsfeed cultivation or less? Some of Facebook's critics can't pick a side. A good amount of Facebook criticism boils down to promote stuff I like and then get rid of the stuff that I don't like. So that's clearly not workable. And the thought is well captured by a passage from a recent New York Times op-ed by Brookings fellow Dr. Kate Klonick. Klonick argues that Facebook should tweak its algorithm to favor good things. Her words, not mine. Good things. Now, you probably already see the Jupiter-sized flaw in that logic, but number one, the Times didn't, and number two, I encourage you to enjoy the ride anyway. Klonick writes, and lucky for you, I am a legendary impressionist, and I have been working on my Dr. Kate Klonick impression for weeks now. So I'm going to read this in her voice. Here it goes. Facebook is perfectly capable of measuring user experience besides the narrow concept of engagement, and it's time that those measurements were weighted more heavily in company decision-making. That doesn't mean just weighing harmful effects on users. It could also mean looking at and measuring the good things Facebook offers how likely you are to attend a protest or give to a charitable cause you hear about on Facebook. End Kate Klonick impression. I should have said that she sounds basically identical to me. Nonetheless, if you, if you know Kate, you're thinking, God damn, he nailed that. Back to my writing. So, attending a protest is good, is it? How could Dr. Kate Klonick possibly not anticipate the counter-argument to that. If I was coaching a high school debate team and a kid made that argument, I would write, must expunge from team before state finals in my notes. Because, obviously, not all protests are necessarily good. To pick an example totally at random, some might consider a gathering in which people storm the Capitol to overturn a democratic election to be bad. And thus, Klonick's promote good things ethic would clearly fail to nudge people away from content that she calls salacious or extreme. The most aggressive thing you could do to change Facebook's behavior would be to alter or even repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This is the cudgel that senators wave around sometimes when they want to bully tech companies into doing what they want. It's mostly a bluff. They can't repeal Section 230 because if they did, it would put any site built around user content out of business. There have actually been a couple instances of companies losing Section 230 protections, and the result wasn't better-behaving companies. The result was that those companies shut down. Minor tweaks to Section 230 might be possible, but they wouldn't solve most of the problems that are getting everyone's undies in a bunch. You could maybe make it harder for sex criminals and drug dealers to use the site, but no change to 230 will solve the my aunt thinks Obama was born in Kenya problem, 
or the my daughter saw an Instagram thirst trap and now she's depressed because she doesn't have the proportions of a butternut squash problem. For all the grandstanding and fist pounding and empty talk about getting tough on big tech, I have not personally heard any suggestions that I consider both significant and workable. And there's one more problem with heavy regulation. It might be the best thing to ever happen to Facebook and other tech giants. If you make social media companies heavily mediate their platforms, if they need four lawyers and six compliance officers for every user, you might create a situation in which the giant companies can pay those costs, but the plucky startups that might challenge them cannot. It is notable that Facebook is calling for regulatory updates. If the Get Tough on Facebook crowd actually got their way, they might end up making Facebook impossible to dislodge. You can imagine a world in which Facebook takes Haugen's suggestions, becomes 10% less of a trash pile, and they do just fine. It's also possible to imagine a world in which they become 10% less of a trash pile and get displaced by a company that delivers maximum trash. Because, and this is really the key point, we want the trash. Social media companies succeed by building sites that we want to use. We all get on our high horse and act like we don't want the sex and celebrity gossip and bias-affirming articles, but we obviously fucking do. I, for one, am not going to claim to be above the trash. I actually think the trash can be kind of great. Sometimes I'll have an opinion, so I'll seek out an article from a writer that I know is going to agree with me. Am I proud of that? No, but sometimes I want to do that. Other times, I'll go down a Conan, Norm MacDonald, Coen Brothers rabbit hole on YouTube, and it's a great way to kill some time, and it's a lot of fun, and fuck you. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, I will be on Instagram. Not often. I don't hang out there. But sometimes, I'll be there, and yes, I'll click on a thirst trap, because goddamn. I mean, well done, ladies. I am done feeling shame about liking the trash. More trash, please! Social media sites are designed to give us what we want. It's not Facebook. It's Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and any successful social media site you can name. It's actually interesting. Growing up with these sites might cause people to better understand what they are, as evidenced by the fact that people over 65 according to one study, are almost four times more likely than people aged 18 to 29 to share fake news. Four times! I'd take that number with a grain of salt, but it's still kind of interesting. Social media might not really be corrupting us so much as reflecting the extent to which we have already been corrupted. So to my mind, the question here isn't whether Facebook sucks. Of course Facebook sucks. And of course Mark Zuckerberg sucks. No man who posts a video of himself hydrofoiling while holding an American flag could possibly not suck. That is basically a mathematical law. So of course he sucks, but the question is whether we could ever expect the social media landscape to be dominated by so-called ethical companies. And I think the answer is no, for one simple reason. 
we would not use those companies' platforms. Instead, we would gravitate to the platforms that do a better job of delivering that sweet, sweet trash. Personally, the main ethic I want social media companies to follow is butt the fuck out. It is precisely because Mark Zuckerberg sucks that I don't want him being highly active in deciding who's allowed to say what. Empowering companies to have a major role in deciding what speech is allowed is a terrible idea. And getting the government involved in those decisions might be the only idea that's worse. And many people will argue that this would result in a social media verse filled with false, inflammatory, and otherwise unsavory content. And those people are totally right. It is going to be a shit show. But it's going to be a shit show no matter what. The societal change that we're experiencing is driven by technology. It's not driven by companies' decisions. No tweak to the Facebook newsfeed algorithm or carefully crafted change to Section 230 will substantially alter the world we're living in. We have created this social media universe, and it is made in our image. If we don't like what we see, then the change lies within. And I'm going to end by encouraging you to look up a video that I saw on YouTube. It's actually something YouTube's algorithm recommended to me. Good job, algorithm. Another upper deck home run. You got me totally pegged. The video, which many of you already know, is Welcome to the Internet by Bo Burnham. It's a funny song. It's musically sharp. Burnham stuff is always musically sharp. Uh, But I, I like the song's message. I think it's really relevant here. The message, as I take it, is the Internet is a weird, interesting, kind of fucked up place. And I like that because in that regard, the Internet is a lot like the world itself. I think we need to stop imagining that some enlightened despot tech executive is going to come to our rescue and instead accept that, in some form or another, this is just what the Internet is going to be. And that's the column. Boy, it would have been nice if we could have ended that one with Welcome to the Internet by Bo Burnham. Uh, But of course, that is not copyright expired. So instead, we're ending with arguably the only song better than that, which is, of course, Charlie My Boy by the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. Thank you very much for listening. Again, I'm Jeff Maurer. The Substack is I Might Be Wrong, where you will find this article and many, many others. I'll be back next week with another article. Bye for now.